In today's episode, we open our Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 12, verse 25, through chapter 13, verse 12. Barnabas and Saul return from delivering the famine relief to Jerusalem, and the Antioch church sends them off on their first missionary journey. Led by the Holy Spirit, they encounter sorcery and opposition, even conflict with a false prophet. However, they also witness the power of God as Saul, today known as Paul, confronts and temporarily blinds a sorcerer. Good morning and blessed Pentecost. Today is Wednesday, August 9th, and you're listening to Thy Strong Word, where each weekday morning we explore the holy scriptures which God bespeaks as righteous and nourishes our faith. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo of St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota. I'm so grateful for listeners like you whose prayers and contributions support KFUO. Many thanks to God also for our sponsor, the Lutheran Heritage Foundation, whose work of translating and publishing and distributing Christ-centered materials around the world helps spread the gospel of Jesus. You can learn more about the Lutheran Heritage Foundation at lhfmissions.org. But this morning, as we head into our text, I'm pleased to introduce the Reverend Christopher Amon, pastor of St. Paul Lutheran Church in Pipestone, Minnesota. Pastor Amon, welcome back to the program. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Well, it's excellent to have you here. Today we're going to dig into Acts chapter 13, at least just the first part. Uh, But we also have to take a step back and look at the death of Herod, because we didn't quite get to that yesterday. So it's all right. We're going to do that, too. But I tell you, before we we get into any of it, though, would you uh, begin our time together with prayer? Absolutely. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for those who bring us your holy word that we may hear it and inwardly digest it. May we continue to receive it with great joy and also to the edification of others, share it so that all may know the gifts of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. So uh, before we do anything with our assigned text today, let's do a little housekeeping, take care of that. We're going to head back to Acts chapter 12, verse 20. And this is right after Peter was miraculously released from prison. We've seen the apostles experiencing quite a bit of persecution, and a lot of that was at the hand of uh, Herod here. And so we're going to read this last section, which gives us, you know, it's actually interrupting the flow of the text to bring us this message about Herod. But I think uh, what Luke is trying to do is show us a little bit about how the the persecution waned and flowed. And of course, it waned as Herod uh, found met his end. So let's start with verse 20. Now, Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord And having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace, because their country depended upon the king's country for food. And on an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, The voice of a god and not of a man. And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down, because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last but the word of God increased and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. 
All right, so that last verse was verse 25. That actually begins our section. But, yeah, here we have Herod. Uh, isn't that interesting, Pastor? You know, Herod has been persecuting the people. He gives this apparently uh, just a fantastic speech, <laughs> so much so that, that people are just like, wow, this is, this, is a, this is a God talking, not a man talking. Um, and I think uh, Herod enjoyed that too much and got his immediate comeuppance. I know this wasn't your section to study, but what are your thoughts? No, that's about all right. It? Yeah, I think it's an interesting break. Like you mentioned, it is a little bit disruptive of the flow in terms of the acts of the apostles. And yet, it also kind of gives us this little break in distinction. Um, one thing I like is just placing it historically, but then also just from how we think of this. Herod has had these moments, um, you know, uh, with Jesus. Of course, he oversaw the crucifixion and that whole parade and uh, the beheading of John the Baptist. And so we're kind of getting this shift now, too, of those in opposition to Jesus and to the disciples. And now the word's going to flourish. Uh, there's still certainly going to be persecution. But this word is going to flourish. And what a great contrast this is, too, of, you know, we have this evil thought of Herod, and yet if he were to go around politicking today, he'd win whatever political party's nomination, uh, hands down. Everyone loved him. Yeah, I mean, the Herods were pretty well known for being, um, you know, they, they had a, a mixed background, which is what we talked about yesterday. They They identified, I guess in modern language, we would say, they identified as Jewish. Um, this is Herod Agrippa I. He's the grandson of the Herod most people think about. And yeah, he's pretty much uh, doing the same thing to the church whole that his granddad did to Christ himself. And we see this, uh, this struggle between the people who are in power and, of course, the Christians who are going and they it's not a real threat to their power, of course, but they perceive Christianity. They perceive proclaiming in the name of Jesus. They see that as a threat to their power. And and God wants him to know, I guess, I mean, in a very immediate way, but also us to know that he is ultimately in charge. So when the people were giving praises to Herod and for his, uh, for to Agrippa for his uh, amazing speech, then, of course, the Lord strikes him down. Um, kind of crazy. Uh, one commentator I read also said that maybe the people were just trying to flatter Herod by saying, you know, these things about him sounding like a god, which is possible too. Uh, well, sure, we want is, those. We yeah. want those in power to think well of us, so you know, we want to make them feel good so that they think we're on their side and maybe do us a favor later. Yeah, exactly. They're actually kind of treating him the same way that the Greeks treated their pantheon of gods, or the Romans also. They're just trying to uh, appease the the leadership so that they can get some sort of benefit. Um, yeah, just a couple little things I want to point out for folks before we move into our text today. Uh, verse 21, it says, On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes. Uh, Josephus, a famous Jewish historian, he wrote in his Antiquities, uh, he actually writes about this particular event, and he says that Herod's robes on this occasion were made of silver and sparkled in the sunlight. Now, there's nothing wrong with, you know, dressing nice for sure, but 
you know, King Herod's really this, all the Herod's, but this one included really seems to be full of himself as, as oftentimes anybody that's been given authority and power ought to do, but he didn't give glory to God. And it says very graphically, he was eaten by worms and breathed his last, but the word of God increased. So that's a message for us all. Uh, anything else you want to make from that before we move on to our text? For today? No, I think that's good. Right there. We <laughs> good. <move forward. laughs> all right. Well, let's look at verse 25 then of chapter 12. Uh, we'll hear it again. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other's name was, who other name was Mark. So John Mark, uh, chapter 13. Now there were in the church at Antioch, prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simon, who is called Niger, uh, Lucius of Cyrene, uh, Manian, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. All right, so we'll pause there at the end of three. So this is uh, this sort of sets our scene, brother. Um, down in Antioch, we have all of these different roles. I'd be interested in talking about some of those things, but uh, I'll just let you take the wheel. Uh, what should we learn from this section? Sure. Well, first, I want to start with verse 25, Barnabas and Saul. Just in being service in servants of the gospel, you know, they had been tasked with... Uh, these works of mercy and completing their service and yet also too maybe for us to see i think they're a great example for us uh perhaps a little bit of exhortation for us all you know how often times do we uh finish a work of service do something and like i need a break i'm done but these guys jump right back in you know they've completed their service and now going to be sent off again um you know, this time with a different a different task but we they just didn't give them much time to rest did they they didn't but we just see them continuing on and really this is their whole life uh, just as it really ought to be for all christians uh, our whole life is one of of service to god and our neighbor um, and so for them they're returning to jerusalem really of with uh, what else is needed uh, and then and then moving then into to Antioch and yeah we got different uh, different offices or different roles in the church here bunch of different names that I think kind of have a little bit of of interesting um, little notes for us as well as a little bit of history you know so Antioch this is for for Barnabas uh, and a little bit for Saul, uh, almost more of a homecoming kind of thing. Tarsus is not far. That's of course where Saul was from, um, a little further up north from Antioch. Barnabas said to be from there. Luke himself also said to be from Antioch, and so you know we're getting a lot of of a homecoming kind of for these three um, to go. And, and we see these ones, you know, uh, Simeon, who's presumably uh, 
from from North Africa, uh, Lucius of of Cyrene, also you know that's in North Africa, um, and then I really wanted to look at uh, Menaean here, uh, a member of the court of Herod the Tetrarch, which an interesting. Another translation holds that maybe he was one who was nourished with him or uh, a childhood friend. Uh, one, one commentary in, in history I was reading maybe even mentioned it's possible that they were like foster brothers, so to speak. Uh, and in, even in the same household, that they were nourished together. And here we see they've gone on such different paths one serving the church one proclaiming one believing and then we we just heard what happened with Herod so all of these are not your normal characters uh, serving God's word they're all Gentiles uh, as Luke is prone to point out uh, you know certainly we'll see the gospel goes first to Jews and then to the Gentiles and we see the Gentiles here, all of these uh, Gentiles uh, going going about uh, serving God's word. Yeah, we are introduced to quite a few people in this section. If we if we take a step back um, to verse twenty five, uh, not only do we have, of course, Barnabas and Saul, who we've been already introduced to, but then we have John, also called Mark. Sometimes we call him John Mark. Uh, this would later be the author of the Gospel of Mark, uh, a relative of Barnabas. And, um, you know, we see that he kind of plays, uh, how can I say this, both supportive and contentious roles in the early Christian mission. It often shows us how, you know, things weren't always picture perfect. There were some disagreements and stuff. But as you um, rightly pointed out, there's a little bit of diversity, as we might say in modern times, in the early church. Uh, Antioch, of course, being this major center of Christianity, first place where the Christians were called Christians. Um, you have the Simon called Niger or Niger, simply a Latin word for black, as you pointed out. Um, he was probably of African descent, at least that suggests that. And then Lucius is in Cyrene, which is in modern day Libya, so again, North Africa, as you said. Um, and then not only do you see these culturally different ones, but as you also pointed out, this Manian guy, um, you know, this is uh, probably a little bit upper class, wouldn't you say? Wouldn't you say he has a little bit more standing? I mean, you, you described his contrast with the way that, um, of course, uh, Herod, the Tetrarch, is doing things. But at the same time, this I think this is showing us not only are there other people rather than Jews in the faith, but also people of different socioeconomic standing. Absolutely. I mean, all these other guys, you know, I mean, Saul, of course, was an up-and-comer Pharisee uh, before Blinded, which will have its connotations later um, in his conversion. But yeah, um, yeah, so we have these guys who probably are different workers, different classes, um, and even of even rubbing elbows with the royalty. Uh, but now getting their hands dirty in ministry here. Well, let's look at some of the things they were doing. So it says in verse 2, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, 
the Holy Spirit said, right? So we have the Spirit saying things to Philip right back in Acts chapter 8, go over and join this chariot with the Ethiopian eunuch. Uh, but it's a little less clear here in what way the Holy Spirit is communicating. But however he did it, he says, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work uh, to which I have called them. And then they fasted some more, they prayed some more, and they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Um, I think sometimes today, I don't know about you, brother, but I, I almost wish that the Holy Spirit would just say to me, what do you, what, what do you want, uh, what he wants me to do? Now, I know, of course, he has done that in the scriptures, but it must have been a fascinating time early in the church. You know, you don't, you don't have the express will of God laid out in the New Testament for his church. Um, so there's, they're still dealing with the language of the old covenant. But for the Holy Spirit to come and say, this is what I want you to do, that must have given them so much courage and assure, uh, assurance as they headed out that they were really doing God's work. I wonder if that played a factor in their ability to, I guess, endure so much suffering as a result. Well, it certainly helps if you have that, uh, uh, that word of God backing you. Uh, we see that today, you know, when we, when we can stand culturally, we can stand as a church on sure and certain things from Scripture, from God's holy word. That gives us all of the confidence we need. And yet, so oftentimes, we are left in discerning so many things in our life. Uh, yeah, I certainly agree with you. I wish I would just have that little tap on the shoulder of the Holy Spirit. Hey, say this, do this. Um, it would certainly um, aid our task at times. But we have, as you said, all things that are necessary for us in the scriptures, in God's holy word. And part of that too, you see how they are prepared the same way we are. They were just worshiping, fasting, you know, preparing in body and soul for receiving. They were open to it. And I think that's a part of it too. Having lives, being ready to hear God's word. So they maybe are more open to hearing it uh, in a direction without a preconceived notion. You know, we're worshiping, we're fasting, we're praying. So we can just now hear what the Spirit speaks to us. Another thing we noticed too, besides getting a little bit of insight into how they worshiped, right? We're seeing praying, fasting, laying on of hands. Well, at least in this instance, as they're sending them off. But at the very beginning, it just says, as in, in passing, everybody knows this. It says it in that manner. Uh, now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers. And then it starts to list off those men that we talked about. Talking about the prophets and teachers, it, it, it brings to my mind 1 Corinthians when Paul talks about some of the offices. First um, Corinthians chapter 12, verse 28 says, And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. So he gives kind of a ranking 
uh, of of roles of of I don't know how you would describe it, but just of of church worker roles we might use we might say today. Um, and he says first apostles and then second prophets, third teachers. And here we we see that same order. He doesn't mention prof, apostles, but he does mention prophets and teachers. Uh, tell us a little bit about how you see the different, I guess, ranks or roles uh, in the early church. Uh, should we be, uh, you know, should we have prophets and teachers today in the same way that they did? How, what, what do we do with this information that he gives us about prophets and teachers? What, what are the prophets and teachers? Right, that is probably a million dollar question for us in our in our church bodies you know but no as you mentioned these are mentioned in corinthians and ephesians i think for us we generally have put these together uh in terms of pastoral office um in terms at least practically uh not not entirely uh we certainly have other offices of the church. Uh, I know my congregation as well as yours, we have directors of Christian education. We have preschools that have our teachers. Uh, now when we get into preschools and then certainly our Lutheran schools, they teach, certainly teach God's word in conjunction with subjects, but they also teach academic subjects uh, quite practically. And, and plainly. Um, so I think it just, I look at it more, it highlights different gifts within ministry, different different talents, different usage, uh, all serving the one gospel, serving the one preaching office uh, as, as we serve here. We don't want to confuse pastoral office with other Offices that can, you could make a whole other show on that, but um, we we certainly want to. We just see this as this preaching office, this different tasks. Uh, and I think at the time too, you know, Paul will later mention how baptizing there was only a handful or so that he actually did that as he goes out. Part of it was he was an initi initiator of of these churches and you know he even gives thanks for some that he didn't baptize and p makes a point of that um, and then other pastors uh, such as Titus or Timothy are later placed in different different locations and I think we see these really only in these first little bits of these distinctions, but really, we see those words, we just ought to think pastoral office. Another thing that I see happening in this little short bit of text, and we've only gone through the first couple of verses here, but is something that, and, and, hey, I'm the pastor, so this is as much my fault as anybody else's, but something I don't see in the modern church and I think as much as we should, and that is this level of discernment that's being shown by these prophets and teachers, by these people who are mentioned, Barnabas, uh, 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 Simeon, and Lucius, and, and, and Menean, and Saul, of course. And that is that in, in, in preparation to figure out what they're going to do about this situation, it says they fast and pray and 
lay on their hands. We see throughout the scriptures, but here especially too, that there was so much prayer. And I feel like, and again, I know it's different in different congregations, but I, I can speak for myself and say, I lament the fact that I haven't encouraged more prayer, just just directed prayer, not like a quick prayer before our meeting, but directed prayer for discernment um, amongst our people. Um, do you do a better job of that than I do, brother? Um, what Probably do not better than you. You know, there are moments and times I can that we do, you know, certainly we pray like before a congregational meeting, but you're right. We probably don't imagine if we did that. And yeah, that's what I'm thinking, uh, right? I just imagine every decision sort of directed prayer. Yeah. You know, and instead of, well, this makes sense. This fits within the budget. We like this idea. All in favor, say aye. All opposed, <laughs> you know, and right. we just move on in such a swift manner. Um, I will just say, you know, even at our synod convention that just happened, neither one of us were there, but we've both been before. Yeah. And while there's lots of prayer and consideration and time for worship and study, uh, which I appreciate uh, that they make sure to do that for our delegates. But yeah, both nationally, our district, and certainly locally where everything starts, we can certainly probably do a better job of praying and deliberating. Even looking back at Herod, giving thanks to God for the gifts that that allow this opportunity to present itself. Well, I'll tell you what, why don't we take a few minutes uh, and hear these messages, but when we come back, Pastor Amon and I will keep on going through chapter 13, at least the first part of it. We'll see you on the other side. These are the voices of young Lutherans in Mexico City, children who are excited to learn more about their Savior, Jesus. But they need our help, because good Lutheran books for kids in the Spanish language are in short supply in Mexico. To learn how you can help tell Spanish-speaking kids everywhere about Jesus in a language they can understand, go to the Lutheran Heritage Foundation website at lhfmissions.org forward slash Juan316. Welcome back to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo, and with me today is the Reverend Christopher Amen. He's the pastor at St. Paul Lutheran Church in Pipestone, Minnesota. Dear friends, whether you're tuning in over the airwaves or maybe catching up via our podcast, perhaps you're streaming right now on KFUO.org or you're using that KFUO app. Well, I don't care how you're connected with us. I'm just grateful that you are. Thank you for joining us this morning for the discussion. 
Remember, if you have any thoughts or questions about the show, you can reach out to me. You can email me at pastorboo at gmail.com. Be sure to spell it right, P-A-S-T-O-R-B-O-O-E at gmail. You can also find me on Facebook. Just search for Phil Boo. Um, Be sure to mention how you're listening to the program when you write. I'm always interested in how that is working. Uh, Folks, let's get back to the Bible. Pastor, before the break, you know, we really just got through that little first part where uh, I think we just we milked that as much as we could, everything out of it, because our next section, they've laid hands on them. And now Barnabas uh, and Saul are headed off on their first missionary journey. And the first place they're going is to Cyprus. Uh, anything you want the people to know before we read the next section? I think just to listen, to hear how this all plays out so quickly. Uh, and we so oftentimes and maybe misenvision how the, these guys are received. So, Okay. Well, I tell you what, we're going to read 4 through 12. That's the entirety of our text for the rest of the program. Um, and just, uh, as the pastor said here, listen carefully, see how it goes. So, being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the magician, for that's the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. And immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. All right, that's the end of our section. That's the end of verse 12. Um, Not to jump to the end, but the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred. He was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Undoubtedly, he was astonished at the teaching, as the Holy Spirit in Luke says. But he probably wasn't a a little astonished at, at what happened to uh, his uh, his friend or his associate there, the magician. Uh, but let's head all the way back to the beginning. Um, headed down to Seleucia, then to Cyprus. They're they're starting their missionary journey. Um, Paul takes what three missionary journeys in the Book of Acts, and I think it's hard to keep up with them sometimes. But this is the beginning of the first. This is the beginning of the first, and yeah, they kind of interweave, and we you know. As we read the book of, as you read through the book of Acts, you're gonna just have all of a sudden, in two or three short verses, jump months and even years, uh, in between, uh, as there's occasional jumps and gaps here. But yeah, so it makes it hard to keep track, for sure. But as they go out, they they're they're sent by the Holy Spirit, right? And this is what we're talking about. They are being guided. This isn't just on their own being directed. 
by God's word and going to the people who have God's word. Let's go to first to the synagogues, to the Jews. They should know after all uh, and be able to hear and receive. And this is the starts the pattern that will be throughout the rest of the New Testament, really. Yeah, I like how um, when Luke describes what's going on, he gives us so much, I shouldn't say so much, but he gives us a little extra detail that helps ground us in the reality of this trip. Like he says, they go to Seleucia, which is, is the seaport of Antioch. It's about 20 miles from Antioch. And then down to Cyprus, um, which is the home country of Barnabas, right? And, and, and they Correct. begin, as you were pointing out, their mission in Jewish synagogues. Yesterday we were talking about this a little bit, and I wonder what you think. You know, it's so much easier, or I shouldn't say so much. It seems easier, seems easier uh, to begin with the Jews because you don't have to convince them that there is a God. You don't have to convince them that there's only one God and that he created all things. You don't have to explain to them what a Messiah is. They're waiting for the Messiah. All you're there to tell them is who the Messiah is. But then when it comes to the Greeks and the non-believers, you're having to contend with them all kinds of things. Whether or not there is a God, whether or not there's only one God, what, what in the world is a Messiah? They don't know. So it makes sense starting off in those places, but I'm not sure what kind of activity we might compare that to, to today. I mean, we wouldn't head into to churches to proclaim... I don't know, Lutheranism or something, or maybe we wouldn't head into, or maybe we should, I don't know, or we wouldn't head into uh, like a mosque to say, hey, you guys talk about Jesus, but here's the true Jesus. They'd run us out. Um, there must have been something different, and I, I know that there was, about the way synagogue worship that allowed this to happen, because otherwise this yeah. is just not something we would see today. So something that's interesting with the way you know, at least on a day-to-day -day business, not necessarily on the Sabbath. We saw this with Jesus in, in his ministry too. Uh, they would have this time of open discussion, open learning, that you would learn from those uh, in the synagogue. So that you would go and sit and learn. Um, and I think for us today, how oftentimes we would probably... Probably have more of a tendency of, hey, let's go and we got something to say, so we'll go today. But they had this general thought of, I'm going to hear. I'm going to receive. And to show up daily and maybe to not always even know who it is that's going to speak. And something that I think is very unique to the synagogue worship, at least in the first century, we don't just, you know, show up at church and, well, who wants to talk today? Well, we kind of do at times with, you know, with our weekly Bible studies. Uh, we, we certainly, you hear from the pastor, but we certainly do gather and hear and receive from the collective wisdom of those who have learned through life, through other Bible studies, and can contribute to the conversation. I think that's an excellent point. I, I would agree with you that Bible study might be the closest we would get um, this idea that you might invite other people to share their wisdom or even opinions and then discuss those opinions out. 
Uh, but even the idea of, you know, what, what does missionary work look like today? And not right. necessarily that missionary work overseas with our professional missionaries, uh, but maybe that too. But, but mostly like, how do we share the message today? If, if, if we said, you know what, we're going to go off and we're going to intentionally proclaim Jesus in a, a community, for instance. Um, I guess we face different struggles is all I'm saying. They were able to go. Absolutely. They were able to go to people who already had a general understanding of God and God's expectations. Um, whereas in these days, it's it's probably a lot more akin to their proclamation to the Gentiles. You know, we really have to start from the beginning. Actually, in fact, I'll add one more thing. I think not only is there uh, uh, difficulty in convincing people, well, not that it's our job to convince them, but difficulty in proclaiming God and Christ and the truth of the Bible, but there's also today a lot of misunderstanding. I mean, back then there would be people who literally had never heard of Jesus, but today it seems, it feels like everybody's heard of Jesus, but they've all heard of a different Jesus, right? Right. We've been thumped over the head. We've been abused by other Christians, mis scripture misinterpreted, taken out of context. And opinions formed, um, rightly, wrongly. Um, that is probably our strug different struggle today rather than, oh, tell me more. Well, tell us a little bit about this uh, Jewish sorcerer they ran into. I, I don't know how many Jewish sorcerers <laughs> I've ever met. Uh, but they I've not met one myself. But, uh, <laughs> but they ran into I, a guy named Bar Jesus. Tell us about him. Yeah, so I mean, he's the son of Jesus, which um, before anyone you know wants to go uh, making more out of that, Jesus is a very common name uh, in the first century uh, region there, and you know the Jewish name of Joshua. So, but it does give us this little another little detail. I do think we see this too of. Um, a certain magician, this this sorcerer. And part of it, I think, is important for us today. Uh, I think we downplay sometimes that this exists or even that it ever existed. Um, I would argue it still does, you know, but this use of demonic spells and incantations, I mean, this is brought up quite a bit within the Old Testament. Certainly uh, with the commandments, if we're not wanting to use the Lord's name in this way. Brought up in Leviticus a couple of different places. And in Deuteronomy um, a couple of different times as well. And so this is something that did go on. I would argue probably still does go on just with a little bit of a different nuance. But this use of... God's name, this use of mysticism, this mystery of different powers to try to try to convince, to try to lead astray from God's word. And that's what we have here, this one who wants to wants to just lead away. Uh, he's a Jewish false prophet. So he's probably even wanting to lead away from not just Jesus as the Messiah, the fulfillment. He's likely even leading away from the whole thought and notion of a Messiah. Uh, he's 
leading away from the scriptures, misusing and misapplying God's word uh, to lead others from trusting his promises. Well, as you've said, his name means son of Jesus, um, and he's associated with this Sergius Paulus guy, and we'll talk about him in a minute. But I, I love how when Paul is directing, uh, I guess, his conversation towards him, he's, he's chastising him. He doesn't say, you know, um, well, actually, he does say, you are the son of the devil, right? So this guy who right. calls himself son of Jesus, maybe to, uh, you know, associate himself with the Christ, with the Jesus that um, everybody's talking about, or as you said, maybe it's just uh, just some other Yeshua guy, and that's really his name. But regardless, um, yeah, Paul says, no, you are a son of the devil and an enemy of everything that's right. Elimus, you imagine, his name, which means sorcery. You imagine if we just walked in, as you said, to a mosque, or I got a you know Mormon temple down the road from me, and you son of the devil. <laughs> I just don't think that would go quite over uh, in no, the same I, I, way. No, I do today. think there's some uh, courtesy that we show today that maybe. Absolutely. I, don't, I mean, and again, I'm not saying we should raid the Mormon temples or anything like no, that no. or the Mormon stakes, but at the same time, I wonder if we could be a little more bold, not calling people sons of the devil, but certainly being willing to confront um, sinful behavior in society. I mean, on the one hand, while we want to respect, say, private property and some other faith or religion's ability to meet in peace without them being bothered by anybody, we, we want that for them because we want that for us. At the same time, we shouldn't go so far as to think that, well, our faith is just something we should keep to ourselves. So I, I do think there's a happy medium. Right. And that's what the pattern you're going to see throughout the New Testament. Like you mentioned, we're never called to sin in proclaiming God's word. So if, if you're led, you know, and like you mentioned, we're not going to raid or destroy private property, but we do want to be bold in our confession of faith, which as they were, we said they were sent by the Holy Spirit. We are too. We have God's certain true word here and we need to stand confidently in opposition to sin and even more so than in proclamation of the gospel. We talked earlier about, you know, wouldn't it be nice if the Holy Spirit would tap us on the shoulder and whisper in exactly what we need to do? But he has, right? He has given us in these last days what we need to do through our, our faith in the Holy Scripture or, you know, faith in Jesus, which opens up to us the Holy Scriptures. So, Absolutely. yeah, we see, we see exactly what the, the Lord wants us to do. Um, tell us more about this proconsul. Did you find anything about him, Sergius Paulus? Yeah, so this, you know, Sergius Paulus here. So he's a proconsul. We kind of mentioned in terms of how this spans different classes, so to speak. You know, so if he's a proconsul, you know, he's he's high up in the ranks. Um, he he's there. And he's mentioned quite a bit uh, in the 4th in the century. Jerome makes mention of him. So he certainly call, is one who likely serves later within the church. Um, likely, I've, Jerome mentions him in Africa. 
as well later on in serving God's God's word, uh, serving also then um, in different regions. And I think it's a nice contrast to see. We have, I mean, this is a Roman official. Uh, this is someone who gives, helps give a little, this isn't just the Jews, this is a person who's well-educated, who has a lot going for him in his life, and well, there's not much in the New Testament for him later on. There is, as I mentioned, some other some other notes. He will come up again, um, not him specifically, but we do see Luke mentioning not only this one, but other Roman officials that turn. So he's just one of many, and that kind of becomes Paul's kind of goal too, right? In the midst of the Roman Empire, he sees this wedge of wanting to get to Rome to proclaim the gospel uh, amongst the officials, especially to the Caesar. And so he does, but he does serve, like I said, history, tradition in different ways. Well, I do like how he's... I'll just say I like how he's using his position to summon Paul and and uh, well Saul at this point and Barnabas because he wants to hear about the faith and you know just kind of like at the Areopagus this is not uncommon especially for the connected powerful wealthy anybody who has a little bit of free time they didn't exactly have TV to keep them distracted they were some people were just constantly researching and looking into new ideas and philosophies and religions. Uh, but you're right. Here's a guy, you know, the, the, look at the kingdom, right? It's spreading from friends of Herod to proconsuls to people in northern Africa all the way to Jews and, of course, uh, the Gentiles, uh, the other Gentiles. I, I, one of the things that has been, I guess, has been observed that I don't put much stock into it, but I'm, I'm interested in your thoughts, is uh, some scholars have noted that it was around this time in Saul's ministry that he starts to get into this area, the territory governed by Sergius Paulus, that's, that he begins to use his Roman name, Paul. Um, yeah, so I, I was reading some on that. that. I, I don't know. I think part of it, I think we're seeing the start of Paul's conversion. I mean, we're still, I mean, we're a decade past the the road to Damascus, right? And granted, he spends three years in Antioch. I think this is part of seeing the slow progression of telling the story, of holding continuity. Yes, his name has changed to Paul, but for continuity, early on here, this is Saul. This does start to see the some of the last times where we, he's referred to as Saul. I think it's more reflective of his new identity in Christ as Christian, bearing bearing that name, uh, being a servant. Of course, you know Paul meaning be, meaning little, and so I think there's a little bit of just historical continuity that Luke is doing. Um, I don't put much because Paul he will return to Jewish areas. He'll come back to Jerusalem. He doesn't go back to the name Saul anymore after this. Right. So I look at it more as just a, a shift a shift in his life from his conversion and his identity 
and keeping things clear. Yes, I, 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 I agree, too. I just think it's kind of a, it's certainly an interesting, uh, let's say coincidence, right? An interesting coincidence right. that he suddenly starts using the name Paul. And, of course, we say suddenly starts, but that might not be true either. Um, he could have been using it, and maybe Luke is just trying to keep the consistency, as you were just saying. So, right. well, what else can we get from the rest of this text? I mean, it's got quite a bit of well, things going on. I really would like to look on Elamis here and this condemnation that's and this magician that's coming on, especially in contrast or in comparison with Paul, Saul himself. So here he is, one who is a, actively opposing God's word. He's not just, well, I don't believe you. He's opposing God's word. Uh, trying to keep others from the faith. And perhaps, too, a little bit of what Jesus talks about this, of those that would actively seek to be against. Not just, I choose not to believe it, I reject the gospel. But when you're active and making opposition to the, to the faith. How that's even worse you know, because now not only are you rejecting the gifts, but you are taking part in others receiving God's word and God's promise. And so we see this very, very harsh judgment done. The hand of the Lord is upon him. He's blind. He's unable to see the sun for a light. And then mist and darkness falls on him. And he has to be led by the hand. This goes kind of similarly with Saul's conversion himself. And language that we see in the scriptures used of, of being blind. And a little bit of, of God's judgment. When we are active and against God's word, we're blind. We can't see anything without him. And so if that's how we choose to live and believe, well, then the Lord grants him that which he is against and blinds him. He must now be, be led. Unfortunately, there's nothing that says whether this brings a conversion as it did with Saul to Paul, you know, but it does for the Roman proconsul, whoa, make him stand back as we've mentioned so this, for us to see this, this contrast of these, the ones who are opposed directly to God's word, the ones who would keep others away, there is direct judgment. And we don't always like to speak of that or think of that. But there is warning, there is judgment to being directly against God's word as well. Oh, Absolutely. And, and I think this is why he's, you know, characterized as son of the devil as opposed to the son of Jesus as he's purporting because he's no friend of Jesus. He's trying to turn on his head uh, the, the faith. Um, well, we're getting close to the end of the program. Last thoughts for you, from you about this text before we, uh, we finish today, brother. Sure. And when we see, as the proconsul does, when he sees everything that's occurred, he's astonished, not at the signs. He's not astonished at the miracles. He's not astonished at the blindness in, in verse 12. He's astonished at the teaching of the Lord 
His God's word, God's promise, this living and active word. And I think for us too, as we see these things in our life, it's just the the certainty of the gospel led by the Spirit here that gives us an astonishment and an amazement of His grace, His forgiveness, His mercy. And if we truly look back and reflect even just day to day, how astonishing our gifts of daily bread are to give God thanks and praise for the teaching and the gifts He provides for us. Well, I think that's a great place for us to start to wrap up. Um, Folks, I'd like to thank my guest this morning, the Reverend Christopher Amon. He's the pastor of St. Paul Lutheran Church in Pipestone, Minnesota. Pastor, thanks for being on the show. Friends, tomorrow we open up our books to Acts chapter 13, same chapter, but verse 13 through 53. We finish it up. Paul and Barnabas continue their journey, and they're spreading the gospel in the region of Pisidia. They arrive in a city called Antioch, a different Antioch from the one we've already heard about. We call this one Pisidian Antioch. And there, Paul is invited, as it's his custom, to speak in the synagogue. But what begins as a recounting of Israel's history transitions into a powerful proclamation of Jesus Christ as the promised Savior. But, as you can imagine, as history has shown, opposition and conflict soon arise, and the reactions of the people are a mix. There's some acceptance, which we love to see, but as always, there is rejection. So, it's a message for us to learn from as we continue to study the book of Acts and how Paul and Barnabas and all the others are being used by the Holy Spirit to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ throughout the world. Uh, so much to learn from. I hope you're here tomorrow to join us for that. Until then, may God's peace and blessings be with you all as we pray, Father, keep us in thy strong word. <laughs>